The reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, and that's on page 696 of the Pew Bibles. The branch from Jesse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. If you'd like to keep um, your oh, whoops, sorry, um, if you'd like to keep your Bibles open, and we're going to be looking at the passage um, in some detail. Now, with the youth uh, this term, we have been using a book called Storylines. I don't know whether any of you have read it um, or seen it, um, but it looks at the overarching themes or storylines in the Bible. Um, and one of the first ones they talk about is called the they call it the Jesus storyline. And they say, it's been said that Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and the New Testament revealed. We'd like to suggest that he isn't concealed very well. Not only are there 322 messianic prophecies that point to Jesus, we also find hints of him in the lives of many of the Old Testament heroes. And I love the way they describe it. They say Jesus is all over the Old Testament. Now, it's the same with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, some of you might have this, or your children might have this. It's the book, it's the Bible that we give out at baptisms. Um, it's beautiful. Um, and I actually often encourage adults to read it as well. Um, and the strap line um, for it is this. It says, uh, it's the Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. Although I might like to suggest it should say, every story shouts his name. 
And it's one of the things we also talk about during the Alpha course. Um, so for those of you on it at the moment, we've um, recently have been looking at who Jesus is, um, who he claims to be, and we look at the fact that there are over these, there are over 300 prophecies about him. Um, and for many of these, he had, would have absolutely no control over them, you know, his manner or his place of birth. And it helps us understand that Jesus isn't just some great prophet or king, but he is God himself. He is God incarnate. He is God choosing to come and live with us. So the passage that Stuart has just read for us this morning um, on this second Sunday of Advent, it's just one of those 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And it's a beautiful passage. It's one that we often hear read at this time of year. Um, it's absolutely jam-packed with detail. Uh, so in just 20 minutes, I'm gonna try and help us understand a little bit about what the prophet Isaiah is saying to us. Now, just a word about prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, they often have a now, a soon, and a future meaning. And someone once described it to me um, like a range of mountains. Imagine you going on a walk, um, obviously a mountain walk, um, and you think you get to the summit of the first mountain, and then you realize there's another mountain beyond it, and another mountain beyond that. And prophecies in the Old Testament are a little bit like that. So you have the situation that's happening now, sort of the near mountain, and then there may be um, something that the prophecy is related to in the sort of near future, sort of the middle mountain range. And then the part of the prophecy that is related to something much further on, sort of the far mountain. And when you read prophecies in the Bible, it's really helpful to think about what the prophet is saying so that you can understand, is this a near sort of, or a middle or a far prophecy? And this this prophecy in Isaiah 11 is a really good example of this because it's a word of reassurance to the, a people who are about to go to war with a country, um, their enemy called Assyria. But as we read it, I'm sure you can see that it's really relevant for us now because it talks, it's, has, it's a, has a future prophetic message about Jesus. So to put this passage in some context... In the preceding verses, Isaiah had just been prophesying about near total destruction of the people of God at the hands of their enemies, the Assyrians. The people's lack of trust in God meant that this darkness was closing in on, on top of them. But Isaiah's message throughout, but particularly here, is that darkness, destruction, and judgment are never God's final words. Despite people's failings, God is always faithful to his promises. Grace always triumphs. Light dawns beyond the darkness. And as Nathan talked about last week, when he looked at Isaiah chapter 2, there is always hope. And we read in this passage about God's plan. God's plan was to bring a true king who would rule over a whole perfected creation. So that's the introduction, and that brings us to verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The famous son of King Jesse, you may remember, was King David, 
the king who was chosen by God because he was a man after God's own heart. And God had promised David that through his line of descendants, there would always be one of his descendants on the throne of God's people. But this line of kings hadn't always worked out. They hadn't always been good kings or faithful to God. So throughout the Old Testament, there are countless prophecies about the perfect king, a descendant of David or Jesse, who would come and be the perfect shepherd of God's people. But if you notice here, Isaiah doesn't say this is going to be just another king in the line of David. This is a new king, a new line out of a seemingly dead stump. It's a new sapling, new growth. Picture going on a walk. Um, it might be because I've just got new walking boots that I keep thinking about walks at the moment, but picture going on a walk. And perhaps it's after a recent storm and you see some, a, a seemingly dead stump of wood, you know, um, a seemingly dead tree, but it's already got fresh new growth springing out of it. And this is the picture that is being painted for us here. The implication of the passage is that the tree of David has been felled completely, but there is still hope. Um, new growth is promised. And Isaiah is giving them this hope. In place of the failed kings in the line of David, or the arrogant and oppressive army of Assyria, there's going to be a king in whose hands even the weakest will be safe. But this is a prophecy surely we can't apply to any human king. The characteristics in this passage described are almost superhuman. And the passage tells us three things about this king which we're going to look at this morning. It tells us about his qualifications, it tells us about his performance, and it tells us about his results of his reign. His qualifications are because of divine endowment, his performance is characterized by absolute justice, and the results of his reign are security and safety. So we're going to look at this in a bit more detail. Verse 2, his qualifications. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. In the Old Testament, the main impression of the spirit's work is that the spirit of God came upon people for specific times, for specific reasons, in specific places. But here, the work of the spirit of God is steady and continuous. It's resting continually and permanently on this person. And I'm just wondering whether this verse reminds you of anything, whether you've read it before somewhere else. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Whether it reminds you of um, a little passage in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels, which means that this is really significant. Jesus' baptism, and it says, at that moment, heaven was opened and he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. See, we're told that when God's Spirit rests on this king, they bear fruit in a way that human kings can only pretend or long for. And the attributes listed in this passage, wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and knowledge, are ones which Scripture often refers to for God himself. But here, the promise is they become real in a person. 
And you might have noticed that there are three pairs of characteristics of the spirit. And they pair up. So the first pair are attributes for ruling. The second pair are practical abilities. And the third pair are spiritual qualities. So firstly, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. These are attributes for ruling. Wisdom gives the right judgment for everything. And understanding, which is the ability to see to the heart of the issue. And then you have the practical abilities, the spirit of counsel and of power. Counsel is the practical ability to devise the right course of action. And power enables them to see it through. And then we come on to the spiritual qualities, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Knowledge and most importantly, fear of the Lord. Fear of God. Now in some places we see this interpreted as respect or awe or submission, but actually it's more important than this and it doesn't really describe that word properly. Essentially, it's the knowledge of God himself. When we fear God, we have decided that knowing who God is is more important than anything else in life. Fearing God distinguishes true wisdom from wisdom that leaves God out of the equation. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's truth grasped and applied to life, but most importantly, it's through a relationship with God himself. So we've seen the qualifications of this king, and so now we're going to look at his performance. So how does this royal shoot, which we know as Jesus, how does he respond to his task? How does he perform? And we'll look at verses 3 to 5. It says, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. We read this, this king, he worships. He delights in God. And out of that worship, he commits himself to righteousness and justice. Now, this word pair, righteousness, justice, occur frequently in Isaiah. It's a little bit like a headline or banner for the good society. Um, you can imagine it a little bit like an election campaign, which is probably not very hard or very difficult to imagine at the moment. Um, we see it in headlines. Um, and catch, catchphrases on adverts everywhere, don't we? Um, buses, TV adverts, social media. And one of our local candidates wrote this. She wrote, um, I believe passionately in social justice and the right of individuals to live free from poverty and ignorance. And I think our nation longs for this. And amongst everything else that's being campaigned for, social justice is now a key word in our political system. But why do I mention this? It's because righteousness and justice can be translated as social justice. However, this is true social justice. If we are truly living in a right relationship with God, justice should naturally happen. There will be fairness, 
generosity and equality. And back in Isaiah's time, the kings were meant to look out for the poor and the outcasts in society. They were meant to give them special protection. But there was a huge gulf between the ideal and the reality. And I'm wondering if that sounds familiar to us today. We know that life isn't like this and never has been like this. So this king is desperately needed. And being clothed in the spirit, he knows the divine principles of right, but he's sensitive to what people deserve. He deals even-handedly with all. He gives perfectly fair judgment, but he also takes the side of the weak and the vulnerable in society. So that's his qualifications. That's his performance. But what about the results of his reign? And the imagery changes at this point in Isaiah, and we read a picture of the results of this king's reign. So let's read verses eight, 6 to 8 again. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. It's a beautiful few verses, and there are different views about the meaning. Sometimes um, it's interpreted literally, sometimes spiritually, um, but often figuratively. But it's actually verse 9 that gives us the answer and explains these verses. And it says, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. They will neither hurt or destroy, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In other parts of Isaiah, he's often used animals to mean humans in other bits of his prophecy. So the context of the passage suggests that the description of harmony in the animal world is actually a description of, or a metaphor for harmony in the human world. But essentially, the message is this. When this king reigns, all the fears associated with insecurity, danger, evil, and death will be removed. The strong and powerful will live peacefully together with the weak and the powerless because the weak and the powerless can believe that the former are no longer seeking to devour them. When we are in relationship with the king, we are transformed and so our world is transformed. Our relationships with each other and our relationships with creation are changed and restored and renewed. But when we look around us today, how often do we see this picture? We still see the strong and the powerful doing exactly what has been happening all the way through history. The weak and the powerless are still exploited, aren't they? In creation, in the animal kingdom, and amongst people too. People are still trafficked, enslaved, taken advantage of, and we see it on a mass scale, but we see it in our own communities and as we walk down our streets. So surely, out of this beautiful passage, the question for us today is this, how is our world to change? Are we ever gonna come anywhere near this beautiful picture of, that Isaiah has? And then verse 10 tells us, In that day, 
the root of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Or in another version it says, on that day the root of Jesse will be raised high. And 2,000 years ago, the king was raised high. Jesus was raised high on a cross. High on a cross. The cross is our rallying point. The cross is our rallying banner. People are drawn to Jesus, like we are drawn to a rally banner when we are lost in the middle of a great crowd. In the cross, we find both the forgiveness we so desperately need and the one in whom we're able to enjoy the friendship of God. And his dwelling literally means place of rest. And in other parts of the Old Testament, the word is translated as home or resting place. And isn't that incredible? Jesus calls us to his home, to his resting place. Jesus offers us a place of comfort and security, like a home should be, a place of hope and of rest. But he is also that hope and that rest. And then he asks the same from us, that as the church, we go out in his name to offer the world hope and rest, to bring in God's kingdom now. And we know we only see these changes in part at the present time, don't we? We know that evil and pain are still present. But we also know that through Jesus, lives are changed and our world is changed. Much of the work today against modern slavery is through people who love Jesus. Organizations like Tear Fund and Arosha have been campaigning for years against climate change. And I know countless individuals who have committed their lives to use their gifts to make a difference in the world. And I know many people who love Jesus, who love to introduce their friends to him. Because if we know that Jesus has changed our lives, we know that he can change the lives of others and he can change the world. See, places where Christians are in the world should be better, should be characterized by righteousness and justice and faithfulness, because it's our job. Just as righteousness, justice, and faithfulness are described like clothing in verse 5 here, like a belt which indicated that the king was ready for action, we should be putting on, the challenge for us is that we should be putting on clothing every day of righteousness, justice, and faithfulness. Like Job says in Job 29, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. And as we start to think about Christmas, this passage should shake us out of our warm, cozy, safe places. Because Jesus literally moved in with the poor. The lowly stable, often seen as so romantic, actually just would have been smelly and harsh. There were no home comforts. Jesus was born into poverty. He lived his life as an adult on the road. He had an unfair trial. And he, was, um, and he died undeservingly as a criminal. He didn't come to be comfortable. And he didn't make, come to make us feel comfortable. He came to transform our world. 
But at the same time, there is nothing wrong with celebration and joy at Christmas. In fact, there's everything right with us, right with it. Because the king coming shakes the world and changes lives for good. So we should be celebrating. And we should be celebrating really loudly. We just need to make sure that we're celebrating about the right thing. So that we're celebrating about the king who comes searching for you and for me. The king who is on the side of the poor and the vulnerable. The king who fights for his creation. And the king who asks us to work with him and fight with him, holding out the love of God in Jesus to everyone around us, not just at Christmas, but at every day. Because there is always hope, isn't there? Against all the odds, not by human, clever human planning or gradual world improvement, by, but by the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So in the darkness, we hold out Jesus, the rallying banner, the place of rest, the hope for our world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving Isaiah this beautiful picture, this beautiful um, prophecy of Jesus. And Father, when we look at this picture, we long for our world to be like that. We long for our lives to be like that. And Father, it's incredible that in some way you enable us to help your kingdom come now in our world. So we pray for your kingdom to come, for your kingdom to come in our lives. Perhaps for the first time today, perhaps just that we ask for that renewal of love and of hope in you. And particularly at Christmas time as we look around us um, and we see a lot of joy, but we also see a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Help us to hold out the incredible hope that we have in Jesus. Pray that you would help us to be lights in our community, to draw people to you, to draw people back home to their Father God, to draw people to the King who reigns over the most glorious and wonderful kingdom. And we look forward to that kingdom coming in the future in its fullness. But Lord, we pray for more of that kingdom in our lives and in our communities and our world today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.